Hi, and welcome to the Hingham Cast. I'm your host, Allie Donnelly. For the last 20 years, I've been on your TV, an investigative reporter for NECN and NBC Boston. But I'm telling stories in this new way here on Boston's South Shore. The Hingham Cast is hyper local. We look at the pandemic, politics, and everything in between through the lens of one small town, my town. But the issues we're exploring are unfolding in communities across the country, like the toll being taken on our children's mental health. I want to warn you about today's episode. We're talking about self-harm or self-injury, when kids hurt themselves to deal with emotional pain. Specifically, we're talking about cutting. For some, the conversation could be a trigger or not appropriate. But when you look at the data, it's an important conversation to have. According to the CDC, the number of kids needing emergency help for mental health issues like panic, anxiety, or self-harm were up by as much as 31% compared to the same months before the pandemic. I'm going to introduce you to a young woman who's gotten healthy but has been through hell and back. She shared a photo of her scarred body after years of cutting. It's very difficult to look at. At first glance, I thought it was a man's arm covered with hair. But there are slashes, burns, scars from stitches, too many to count. It's hard to imagine a little girl doing that to herself. Let's meet her. So now I have a bunch of flowers. I've got a tree. And the tree kind of like goes up my arm. Danielle Charpentier describes the tattoos that cover much of her lower arm. The 23-year-old has been working to transform the physical evidence of nearly a decade of hurt and pain. How many scars are there from cuts? There's thousands. You cut yourself thousands of times. Yeah, I mean, when you, because when I would hurt myself, it, it wasn't just one or two each time, and I did it for 10 years. Danielle says she always had some level of anxiety as a kid, but never would have said she'd start cutting. I grew up with what the typical person would consider perfect. My family was whole. I grew up on a lake. It was just a genuinely happy childhood. But she started getting bullied in middle school and didn't feel like she had anywhere to turn. I just felt like no matter where I was, I didn't belong. The first cut was an accident when she was 12, a small wound on her hand but it set off something inside her. It, it just released a lot of kind of like emotional pain. Like when I had cut myself, the pain from that just made me feel happy in a way. Because you weren't feeling the emotional pain, you were feeling the physical pain? Exactly, yeah. Within days, she cut herself on purpose, then again and again and again. It was just any object I could find, but usually it was like a staple or small objects that you really wouldn't, think would do anything, but they do. Mm. I think I was just engulfed in so much like emotional trauma and just everything in my life. So when I would hurt myself and seeing blood, seeing that made me feel like I was still alive. Mm. So when you first started cutting yourself after that accidental one, where did you cut? I started cutting myself on my my hand and my fingers, uh, my thumb specifically. Mm. And when I saw that that looked too... You know, it was too much of like people would think I was hurting myself. I switched to my leg. Mm-hmm. And then when I had no more space on my leg, I moved back to my arm. What did people say? What did your parents say? Um, I mean, no parent ever wants to see their child hurting themselves. Mm-hmm. What did they do? Uh, so at first, 
they really didn't know what to do. Um, but I was in gymnastics and my gymnastics coach noticed my thigh. He noticed that it didn't look like my story of I fell while I was hiking. Mm. So he reached out to my parents and that was the first time I had gone to the emergency room for an evaluation. And what happened from there? I went inpatient for a week, but that inpatient week started a lifelong journey of inpatient stays. Because you couldn't stop? Yep, I couldn't stop and I got comfortable going inpatient. Tell me why. For, for some reason, when you go somewhere where everyone else is like you, you just, you feel belonging. And mm. like I had started off with, like, I just did not belong. Mm. So it was nice to have that sense of community where I was with all these other kids that, you know, were going through what I was going through. Did it slow down your cutting? It didn't. Mm. At my worst, my cutting was, I wouldn't even look where I was cutting. Mm. I would just take a razor blade and just start swiping away at my arm. Mm. Because... Honestly, when you're in the moment, you really, you don't feel it like you would think you would feel it. And I did not feel like I was successful in hurting myself unless I had to go to the ER to get stitches. How often did that happen? Oh gosh, I was a frequent flyer as the ER would call me. Um, I was there weekly getting stitches. How deep were you going? I was going deep enough where I've, if I was not seeing fatty tissue, I was not deep enough. I had to go half inch down to be, you know, feel okay. I'm sorry. It's okay. We all we all go through things. Were you trying to kill yourself? So at that time, no, I wasn't. Um, that's a very preconceived that anyone who hurts themselves in that way is trying to kill themselves that way. Mm-hmm. But I personally never had tried to really take my life by cutting myself. It's a very hard thing to do, to take your life by cutting. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, it was all about that emotional release. Yes. What did your friends say? Um, so self-harm makes it hard to have friends because mm. um, you're, you're looked at as, you know, the weird girl or the girl that, you know, she's doing it for attention. Like there's so many different names that people will call you because of it that you really don't have many friends. Mm. Um, I had a few good friends that I was friends with my whole life and it was hard on them. Mm. Definitely. Because back then, like at that age, you don't really know what it is. And you kind of look at it like, are they going to kill themselves? And no kid ever wants to see their friend kill themselves. I want to take a break here to ask you, if you think these conversations are valuable, please subscribe to the podcast and share us with a friend. And sign up for our once a week emails letting you know about new episodes. That's thehinghamcast.com. Let's get back to our conversation with Danielle. She says inpatient stays at hospitals didn't work for her, but intense therapy did. After years of angry stops and starts, therapist shopping, she called it, she finally found someone she could connect to and be honest with. Do you, are you able to now look back on 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, old you and... Are you able to look at that kid now with empathy? Yeah, I I just wish I got more help and I took the help that was offered to me because up until I was 20, 21, I did not accept the help that was offered. Mm. I didn't want to talk. And I think talking is huge in helping those that struggle with this. Yeah, yeah. So you're 23 years old now. Yep. 
When was the last time you cut? The last major time was in uh, March of 19. So why have you stopped? Honestly, it was something that I just realized I have more to live for than hurting myself. And did therapy help you get there? Therapy definitely helped me. So what would you say to a kid who started cutting? I would tell that child that, you know, it's it's not worth it. And you talking to people is the best thing for you. Keeping in emotions will only make it worse for you. Mm. So were you able to kind of transfer that emotional release from cutting to talking? Yeah. Once you find the right person to talk to, talking feels better than hurting yourself. If you want to put a face to Danielle's voice, head to our media partner, The Hingham Anchor. You'll see Danielle as she is now and her tattoos. She says she's covering her scars, but telling their story, too. Okay, back to our conversation. I want to bring in my next guest, Dr. Barry Walsh, with Open Sky Community Services in Worcester. He was one of the first therapists to focus on self-injury in the 1980s after seeing a lot of young patients who had come in hurting themselves. Hi, Dr. Walsh. Good morning. It's very difficult to hear Danielle's story. And I wonder if you could tell us how prevalent self-injury cutting is. Well, around 17% of youth are found to self-injure in our country. Mm -hmm. So it's quite accurate to refer to self-injury such as cutting, burning, skin picking, self-hitting, scratching, uh, hair pulling and the like as an epidemic of sorts. Yeah. What is it that makes a child or has a child taking that first step to hurting themselves? Almost everybody gives the same answer. They say it gives me relief from emotional distress. Mm. And people have different types of emotional distress. Some people are anxious, some people are sad, Mm. some people are ashamed, some people are furious, angry, frustrated. But self-injury appears to relieve all of those emotions in different people. And a very clever researcher named Joseph Franklin out of Florida State University discovered in some laboratory studies that the areas of the brain that manage physical pain overlap considerably with the areas of the brain that manage emotional pain. Mm. And it turns out when you hurt yourself, such as cutting, and you stop, the brain experiences relief that the physical pain has ended. But then here's the kicker. The brain is tricked and it simultaneously removes emotional pain. Mm. Uh, So it's not a marvelous coping skill by any means. It's a problematic behavior, but it does work. Yeah, Is cutting more common in girls than boys or women than men? It is. Cutting is more common in females, two to three to one, roughly. Mm. Males who are more aggressive in general tend to use more aggressive methods, such as uh, punching themselves, hitting themselves, banging their heads, uh, burning themselves. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I wouldn't think that cutting in particular or burning would be something that a child thought they could hide from view or their parents or for long. What is it that makes them take that gamble anyway? Is that part of it? Well, you see, people cut for different reasons. Mm. The primary reason is for emotional relief, but some people use it as a communication device. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there are the kids who 
do it secretively on areas of the body that most people are unlikely to see, such as the shoulders or abdomen. Mm -hmm. And then there are those who walk down the hallway in school with blood streaming down their forearms. Mm -hmm. And some people inappropriately will refer to the latter as attention-seeking, which is a very superficial explanation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The way I look at it is this person's trying to convey a message to somebody. What is it? Whereas the person who does it secretively and doesn't want anyone to find out, their motivations are pretty clear. They're Mm -hmm. doing it for emotional relief, and it's not about interpersonal interactions. Is there a typical age that it starts and how it progresses? Yes. Studies have shown in the last few years that the typical age of onset is 13 to 15 or 16. Mm Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you start before age 13, uh, it actually suggests there may be a more ominous course. Does that mean that the cutting progresses to deeper wounds or is it a predictor of a suicide attempt? What is that? Both. It actually is predictive of that individual using more methods Mm. and also more likely uh, eventually to present with a suicide attempt. Hmm. Some people cut deeper because what used to work to get the relief no longer works, so they have to perform greater damage in order to get the same relief. Hmm. You know, if I were to walk in on my child cutting themselves, I would think that was an automatic precursor to suicide attempts. Is that true? No. Uh, It's a common myth that cutting the wrists is a suicide attempt. Hmm. It's not. Almost nobody dies by cutting the wrists. It's extremely hard to die by cutting the extremities. Mm. Some people may do that because they've heard that myth and they want to convey to someone that they're extremely miserable. Mm. Mm. But the good news is that behavior is unlikely to result in death. I want to take a break here to say, if you or your child need help, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's 800-273-8255. If you're more comfortable texting, you can text C2T, that's the letter C, the number two, and the letter T to 741-741. Okay, back to our conversation with Dr. Walsh. Is there a personality trait or something inside one child versus another that's going to make them more open or more likely to hurt themselves? Well, in many ways, they're very different. I treated a couple of years ago a young woman who was a straight-A student and now is pre-med in college where she continues to be a straight-A student. And her self-injury had to do with perfectionism. Hmm. And uh, she would self-injure on her shoulders because she didn't want anyone to find out. Mm -hmm. And she just didn't have coping skills to deal with the incredible demands she placed on herself to be academically perfect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I've treated people who have uh, IQs in the 70s or 80s, don't have very good verbal skills, are emotionally dysregulated, and uh, they rely on self-injury to manage emotional distress. So if, if there's anything that you could say, a general characteristic, it's uh, that they're, they experience emotions intensely and don't have a good roster of skills to manage them yet. Mm. So there's no personality style or prototype or, you know, you can't say, oh, uh, 
they're all socially alienated and uh, they're a group that reject uh, mainstream society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you look at people with self-injury, they go across the diagnostic range of psychiatric diagnoses. It just some people have depression, some it's anxiety, some have some major mental illness like psychosis. They may have bipolar illness. They may have complex PTSD. They mm -hmm. may have OCD. Mm -hmm. There's no pigeonhole for this problem. Mm. So you may have one child that's, say, experiencing some level of anxiety and one child who is severely depressed, and they're both vulnerable to cutting. Yes, they could, they could be for different reasons. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Interesting, interesting. So one of the reasons I believe self-injury exploded 20 years ago, or a bit more, mm. is uh, the explosion of the internet. And all of a sudden, you're exposed to all these people you'd never met. Mm. And there was a great buzz about self-injury and cutting. People were talking about it in very sensationalistic ways. And people were posting photographs of their wounds online or mm. writing poetry. They're still doing this or writing poetry about it. They're doing videos of self-injury online. So there became a certain forbidden but uh, provocative, mm. uh, defiant aspect to this that some people were influenced by their peers to imitate. Mm. Mm. There has been stores that sell cutter clothing or razor blade earrings. Mm. You can still buy on Google razor blade pendants. Mm. What does that tell you? Somebody's sensationalizing the behavior in a sense glorifying it. Wow. So one of the things one has to look into if your child is self-injuring is, is that child's friends, are they self-injuring too? Mm. Is there some sort of social reinforcement going on across individuals hmm. and not just an individual internal influence? So if one child starts cutting in a friend group, perhaps others could follow suit just for kind of the social connection to it. Yeah, the connection is the right word. Mm. You know, some kids are very isolated. They have no friends. They feel left out. Mm. And, and some may join a group of cutters, as they might call themselves, as a way of feeling like they belong somewhere. Mm. We understand each other. We do the same things because we have similar kind of pain or stress. Yeah. Gets to this fundamental question is, why are so many people in pain? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. And, you know, you worry so much and... The fallout of this pandemic and all this isolation and all this internet time, what the toll will be on our kids. Yeah. Uh, educationally, socially, physically, it's a worrisome time. So as a parent, what are the red flags for me in terms of self-injury? Well, you start seeing unexplained wounds. Mm. And they say the cat did it or they passed through a pricker bush or... Okay, that can happen once in a blue moon, mm -hmm. but if it keeps happening, then they're probably being evasive and not telling the truth because they're afraid about getting in trouble or being judged or mm -hmm. the parent freaking out. As a parent, how should I respond if I, if I walk in and find that? Yes, it's important to respond, and this is hard to do the first time you encounter it. It's important to respond with a low-key, dispassionate demeanor. Mm. The reason is... They're self-injuring because they're emotionally distressed. 
And if the parent freaks out and condemns or gets angry or panics or becomes hysterical, well, what's that? That's all kinds of emotion dysregulation. Mm-hmm. So the parental overreaction can trigger the very behavior they don't want to see. Mm-hmm. A common mistake when people encounter superficial risk cuts in a child is they take them to an ER mm-hmm. and they may get admitted to a psychiatric hospital in my opinion, often unnecessarily, Hmm. because it isn't a suicidal behavior. What they need is some sort of outpatient treatment Mm -hmm. where with the therapist, the child, the adolescent, and the therapist can identify what's triggering the behavior, what's triggering the emotional distress, learn some other ways to manage distress. Hmm. And often the family has to be involved because they are often one of the sources of distress. Hmm. Conflict with the adolescent, conflict between the parents, substance abuse in the family, uh, some sort of emotional valence in the family that is causing the child to be emotionally dysregulated. Hmm. You know, perhaps not the ER, but a therapist, a psychologist, psychiatrist. What are you looking for, kind of your run-of-the-mill family therapist, or are you looking for someone who specializes in self-injury? Well, some therapists are averse to working with self-injury, it freaks them out. They don't respond with a low-key, dispassionate demeanor. Interesting. So you want someone who has some experience with it, is comfortable and confident with it, understands the behavior is fundamentally not about suicide, but about emotional distress. So an appropriate question is, Uh. do you have experience and a comfort level with self-injury? Yeah. We're hearing about more kids suffering mental health issues because of the pandemic. But I've also, you know, I mean, before the pandemic, it was hard to get mental health help for a child. What does that look like now? I think in some sense, they may be more available because there has been a major revision and acceptance of online services, of virtual services. And it's actually a big breakthrough, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I was skeptical of virtual therapy Mm. until I had to do it. You lose some things. There isn't the same immediacy. You can't see body language as much. Mm. But, and a lot of people are wary to go into therapy and continuing therapy, going to an office, uh, sitting in a waiting room, Mm. meeting face-to-face with some stranger, to do it in the comfort of your own bedroom or the dining room. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people may be far more likely to pursue therapy if they feel like they're in a, uh, a comfortable place and they can hang up anytime they want to. Yeah. Is there a particular treatment you want to ask about or learn about? Well, the treatment that has the most evidence in support of being effective with self-injury and suicide is something called dialectical Mm -hmm. behavior therapy, Mm -hmm. DBT. It's a very intensive therapy. It's not necessarily the therapy you need for someone who's cut himself or herself once or twice Mm -hmm. and is very early in the trajectory. But if they have an established problem with multiple risk behaviors, DBT is the treatment of choice and should be looked into locally. Okay. But outpatient counseling with somebody who has some experience with Mm self-injury can help that uh, child, adolescent, do a good behavioral analysis of what tends to trigger the behavior Mm -hmm. and teach some coping skills that the parents can also learn and prompt and encourage. Those are the type of therapies that work that teach replacement skills. 
what is it that makes a kid stop? Right. Uh, you know, a friend of mine named Sarah Shaw wrote a dissertation at the Harvard School of Education a while back. She found something interesting. I think she studied intensively 12 women who stopped self-injury. Now, half of them stopped because they went and got therapy and learned new skills. Mm-hmm. But half of them stopped because a significant other was deeply affected by the behavior and may have been upset or saddened by it, or may have said, if you keep this up, I'm going to exit. Mm -hmm. Some people stop for themselves. Some people may stop for others. By the way, not many adolescents are going to stop for their parents. Mm -hmm. That's not what adolescence is generally about. It's often about moving towards independence. You know, it's an eminently treatable behavior. There's a lot of good treatments. People get better. You've got to go and show up and do the work, Mm. but there's help. Dr. Barry Walsh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I want to thank my podcasting partner, Kristen Keefe. Donna Mavromatis at Mavro Creative runs our website. And our intern is Ellie Formasano from Boston College. I'm Ellie Donnelly. Talk to you soon. 